Welcome to episode 270 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Here's what people should not do. Don't call this a Christian special. Christian special. (laughs) Don't call this a Christmas special. It is a Christian special because we love the Lord Jesus Christ and the Trinitarian God. But we're going to be talking a little bit about Christmas and the gospel. Actually, that's not true. We're going to be talking a lot about Christmas and the gospel. So I suppose it is a Christian special. But not necessarily just Christmas special. Oh, yeah. See, okay. I'm trying to make it sound like we had that planned, and that no. idea just slip right off the top because <laughs> makes it. We, I want some credibility on this episode, but it's yeah. it's already all it's lost. It's so all that's done. that's where we're going. So everybody, hang on for just a second because we still got to do affirmations and denials. This is our tradition. So, what are you affirming on this episode? So my affirmation is going to be short and sweet. We have been watching this little show on Netflix called Welcome to Planet Earth, which is kind of like your standard like Blue Planet, Planet Earth, sort of like National Geographic uh, documentary kind of thing, except the host stand-in for the audience person is Will Smith, and Will Smith is just funny and charming. Oh, interesting. But uh, it, it has a little bit of a twist, and basically what it is is like each episode... They explore sort of like a a feature of nature or a feature uh, that is a little bit out of the ordinary, and then they use that to sort of explore like a lesser known facet of planet Earth. So, like for example, one episode was about swarms and like that sort of like the swarm mind and how it functions. And so, I guess Will Smith has had as a lifelong dream to see like the wildebeest migration in Africa. So they use that as like a launching point to talk about like swarm behavior and how, how it functions. And so they go to different, different kinds of swarms. So it's a, it's a really well done documentary, just like all of these kind of national geographic nature documentaries, the language of design and intentionality is all over the place. So it's, it's actually an interesting exercise in presuppositionalism because, you know, they talk about like this, oh, this animal was designed to do, well, designed by who? Dum dum. Right. So, uh, yeah. So it, it's it's really well done. It's really interesting stuff. And because it's not your typical, let's fly a drone over the ocean and look at sharks. I mean, they look at sharks, but that it's not like your normal standard nature documentary. It's also a little bit more interesting. It's also a little shorter. So each episode is about thirty minutes, which is nice because some of those longer ones you get like forty five minutes in, and you're like, I don't want to watch whales anymore. So this is a bit shorter. It's a little bit easier. Then the first episode is about sound. And one of the weird things is that I guess there's this like festival somewhere in Mexico where they set up these gunpowder things and they smash them with hammers and try not to die. Oh yeah. I've seen this. It's crazy. It's, it's pretty insane. Like literally, like I think like clinically insane that you would smash a explosive with a hammer and try not to die. It seems really foolish to me, but Anyways, check it out. It's cool. It's called Welcome to Planet Earth. It's available on Disney Plus uh, in the National Geographic section of Disney Plus. Disney owns everything these days, I feel like. That's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I'm I fine like this with recommendation. it. I'm just, just a comment. 
I like this affirmation because I think there's like something helpful and beneficial for us occasionally to watch these amazing documentaries just about the natural world. Because it's, I mean, who doesn't take for granted that we live in a beautiful place, almost no matter where you are, and that there's a, a miracle, so to speak, with all of the flora and fauna that surrounds us. And so to like be reminded that all this stuff is so intentional. And I like what you said, because isn't it true? Almost like it basically every nature documentary or not everyone, but some of them, it's like this, they're trying to create this tension, this juxtaposition between like saying like, isn't it so amazing that these things all work together? It seems so ordered and intellectual and transcendent, but it's not actually any of those things. Right. Right. (laughs) So it's like, let's see people try to like squirm out from underneath a positing that there is a creator. Because there's so much impossibility, like anybody who's done any small amount of research on any natural function or process will say like, well, this thing is so complex and ordered, so specific and purposefully designed that the probability that would happen any other way besides somebody actually creating it with like an amazing intellect is infinitesimal. And yet I'm going to try to argue that it actually just evolved in some way by happen chance, time plus matter plus chance. Like, yeah, let's start with primordial ooze and end up with... I don't know, Falcons, you know, go. Yeah. It's crazy. Uh, Yeah. We've talked about the evolution of the gaps argument before and how ridiculous it is. So, but check, check it out. It's a cool, it's a cool little series. It's relatively short. Uh, it's, it's for the most part, family friendly. I mean, Will Smith once in a while uses like a, a choice cuss word. That's not super, like super offensive, but that's just how he talks. So you have to kind of, Filter it out for your kids if you have kids, but it's a, it's a, it's a good show. I really, we really enjoy it. Well, I'm going to try to like make a bridge here and the bridge I'm going to build based on the fact that you were speaking about nature and the thing that I'm affirming is called stack rabbit. Have you heard of this? I have not. Okay. So, well, let me, I'm going to go on a limb. How do you feel about Tetris? Like the old school game Tetris. Were you ever a Tetris fan? Uh, I mean, I played my fair share of Tetris. (laughs) I was never very good at it because I'm really impatient with that kind of stuff. But So I think if like you're of a certain age, you're, you've experienced Tetris in one way or the other, and you may have a stronger affinity than not. But this thing called StackRabbit, a dude named Greg Cannon built artificial intelligence to beat Tetris. Like not beat, dominate and destroy the game of Tetris. So if you go to YouTube and search for Stack Rabbit or Greg Cannon, what you'll find is an amazing, it is 25 minutes, but it's a video of basically this AI playing the most perfect game of Tetris ever. And what's super interesting is one, he does a great job narrating this whole AI program. So it's, it's just super interesting to hear about how he did it and what the AI does and how it plays Tetris. But also it goes through things. Apparently Tetris was built to like handle, like we're talking about the the NES, like original Tetris. It was built to handle a level of play that's like beyond human. And so to see a computer engage in that level of play, like you're going to see if you watch the video, like all kinds of different color combinations, like all different kinds of iterations of the game that are out there, but nobody ever actually saw until a computer played the game and could get to these high levels, like the yeah. levels plot the death screen, what they call it. So like, it's just, it's just super entertaining. So go out and search for on YouTube stack rabbit and you'll see like the most amazing NES play that you've ever seen in your entire life, at least when it comes to Tetris. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking at the video online here and like, I got to be honest, there's some parts towards the end of the video here where the stuff is moving so fast on the screen. You, like, I can't, I can't actually see what's going on. Like, right. like I mean, literally, like, it's like 
objects are just appearing in in sequence where they're supposed to be. It's it's pretty crazy. Yeah, it's it's super fun. It can create no pun intended your own rabbit hole. You can do all kinds of things research because he did multiple iterations of this. So he shows like advanced human play where there's mistakes or there's delays. This what I'm recommending is go out and watch where he gets like 102 million records here. And this is like it's perfect play. And the AI is set up to only get Tetrises, which is like the four lines all at the same time. That's all it will do. It'll only maximize that. So it's super interesting. But here's what's fascinating is he breaks the game. So the only reason there is like a limit to this score here is because basically, and he's getting, he's using the, the original NES. So you hear all the music, you actually hear it start to like parse out to skip the music, the sounds, because the processor has to work so hard on the game to keep up with the player, which of course was never supposed to happen. So what a fun excursus into just how computer technology is working against computer technology. And if you've ever played Tetris and you've been frustrated or thought like, I got a really high score, like wait until you see this happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Tetris itself is an example of uh, sort of like God's creative patterning in in creation that there are these regular, regular shapes and regular patterns that exist. Um, you know, kind of like we talked about, like, like the universe is math in a certain sense. Oh yeah. And that like, none of that makes any sense in a randomized, like entirely randomized context, like scenario. There's no reason why regular predictable shapes and objects would come to be in a, a an entirely randomly chance driven universe. So yeah, that's pretty cool. I'm not going to watch 25 minutes of it, but it was pretty cool for like <laughs> the part that I found. You can fast forward. Like that's the nice thing. Yeah. He actually, this is not the full, he takes you through like level zero all the way up to like, you know, the levels that are unachievable, but you can skip through it. It's just super interesting. I actually started watching it thinking I wouldn't go 25 minutes and then like 20 minutes and I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been watching this for 20 minutes. <laughs> this is like super entertaining in a way that I didn't expect. So I was just like, what a creative idea. And you created the second bridge, which was, I see in this a lot of doxology. I mean, again, yeah. here we're talking about a game, which is like to match up shapes, to fill spaces in ways that are neat, succinct and ordered. Right. Why do we even have that propensity? Like this is... In many ways, if you said to somebody, and I think this is why it took so long to make this game. If you said like, here's the idea that I have for a game, they'd be like, that's super dumb. And yet this right. is like appeal to everybody, like almost like universally right. this game is adored. And if you teach anybody this game in two seconds, they'll be like, I just want to play this thing. Because if you gave me Tetris right now, I'd say, yeah, let's rock a couple levels. Yeah. No problem. Yeah, I, I was never a huge Tetris fan, like I said, because I'm not patient enough. I, I, I would never let the Tetris thing fall down far enough to actually be accurate. <laughs> and then I would just get mad and like smash my controller across the room when I had like the vertical line instead of falling into the slot, it fell next to the slot. I'd be like, I'm yes. all done with this nonsense. Yeah. So. So, that, so that's what I'm saying is like, I'm telling you loved ones, you got to check this out because yeah, it's dude, cool. as he's recording the video and he's doing the, the voiceover, there are times where you hear his sheer joy and excitement because he's created an AI and the AI is learning. So like he, there are times when it does stuff that he didn't anticipate or it finds combinations of things that he was yeah. like, that's totally overseen. He gets excited in that moment. I think yeah. it's so hilarious. So it's, yeah, it's absolutely he, He's going to be real excited when his little Tetris bot takes over the internet and rearranges <laughs> all of our money. It's going to be like this, this, 
this bank account fits nicely with this bank account and just slams them together. And then all, all of a sudden one, one person's broke and one person has four times or twice as much money or four times as much money. I don't know. Listen, sometimes you need to tuck that L shape into that Z shape. You just need to snuggle it in there. <laughs> <laughs> it happens. All right, let's get negative. It's about that time. What are you denying? Well, speaking of negative, I'm denying COVID-19. So I'm going to be serious here because this okay. is a serious subject. Um, we have been very, very transparent and very vocal about how we think the church uh, at large and how Christians in general have responded to the COVID-19 crisis. Um, we've been very clear about what we think is the Christian's obligation under the Ten Commandments to love their neighbor, including uh, promoting and preserving life. But I wanted to sort of bring a little bit of somberness to this. So we, I work in a medical institution, and so we're getting regular COVID-19 updates. Um, you know, for a while, we weren't getting them as often because our numbers and our infection rates weren't too bad. But right now, New Hampshire, where I live, has the highest per capita infection rating, uh, at least the last time I saw it. Uh, of anywhere in the United States, um, we are somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand to fifteen hundred new infections per day, averaged out on a seven um, a seven day average. Which, if you calculate that out, it means that one out of every one thousand New Hampshire residents tests positive for COVID eight uh, COVID eighteen COVID nineteen every day, and so we're getting these updates now. We're getting them daily, and our uh, chief quality officer, who is an infectious disease um, doctor by training, uh, who is in charge of largely in charge of the COVID response. He's been instrumental in our hospitals' response, and our hospital has been instrumental in our state's response. He shared a pretty sobering statistic with us the other day uh, as an institution. In uh, 2019, when the COVID-19 uh, virus, the coronavirus hit, there was roughly 330 million people who lived in the United States of America. And over the last two years, roughly 800,000 of them have died from COVID-19 or from uh, causes directly attributable to COVID-19. Someone who had a, had a known or highly suspected active infection at the time of their death or complications directly resulting from an infection. Uh, 800,000 people, if you calculate that out, that means one in 415 roughly uh, people in America have been killed by coronavirus in the last two years. And so one thing you see constantly online is that there is a 99% survival rate, which is true, right? Only about 1% of people who uh, get COVID-19 overall end up dying. First of all, death is not the only consequence or the only right. thing that can happen to you if you get COVID-19. There are other things that are significant, life-changing, uh, life-ruining kinds of effects that can happen to you. Um, but even so, one out of 415 people in the United States, poof, gone, just gone, dead, gone. So right. before you think too much about, well, it's a 99% survival rate, think about the fact that, yes, 99% survival rate, but that still means that a huge, huge number of people will die. So I, I, I'm saying this because we're at a phase right now where the, the country and the world really is at a critical phase of this where we're hearing about the Omicron variant, we're hearing about you know other sorts of issues that are going on. And I just want to encourage our listeners to really think and consider consider vaccination. I know there are some 
scientific questions that people have in terms of the testing and potential side effects. And those are all discussions that are worth having. I know there are some ethical and moral considerations that people are thinking and praying about related to the use of uh, fetal stem cells during the development and testing phase of this. Those are things that are worth talking about and asking questions about and praying about and thinking through. But, uh, Obviously, since I'm very pro-vaccination on this, I think that those are are issues that the Christian can, in good conscience, work through and come out on the other side, obtaining a vaccination. And what I want people to think about, because this is what's happening in our medical system now, is uh, we are having to shift resources and reallocate staff to take care of sick primarily unvaccinated individuals. And what that's meaning is that other individuals, some of them vaccinated, some of them not, are having to forego uh, non-life-saving but still very important surgeries. And the reason is, is that some of those people who normally work in the operating room keeping a person breathing when they're having a a surgery to repair their knee or to replace their hip or to do some other sort of important but not necessarily life-saving surgery, some of those people are being taken to keep people who are on ventilators breathing. And so we're having to cancel surgeries. We're having to postpone treatments. We're having to do things that have real, real-life medical consequences, and some of them we aren't even sure exactly what those consequences are going to be. Um, there are a lot of people who should have been getting cancer screening colonoscopies over the last two years who have not gotten them. And some of those people we will find cancer in when they do their screening colonoscopy two or three years later. And a portion of those people will die from colorectal cancer that probably could have been prevented. And so when you as a as an individual choose to not get vaccinated, it's not just you that you're putting at risk because you you might say, well, I'm not getting vaccinated, but that's my choice. And it's not even the people that you might, just the people you might uh, become infected and then following you infect someone else that you're putting at risk. But it's also all of the people who might be put at risk because the healthcare system in your area is overwhelmed and unable to take care of basic healthcare needs like, like necessary surgeries and ongoing ambulatory care. Um, so I, I don't want to be too hard on people. I understand this is a personal and a complicated decision, and we've been clear on where we where we land in terms of vaccinations and mask usage and all of that stuff. But this really is something that needs to be thought about and considered. And I think this is going to be one of those issues in our day where we look back at it uh, in 50 or 100 years or maybe even just 10 years. And we as a Christian church regret the way that we approach this on all fronts. I think there are people who have been overly, um, overly judgmental and critical on the uh, sort of pro-vaccination, pro-mask, COVID is a real threat and we should take it seriously side. There are going to be people, and, and maybe Jesse and I are in that category. I don't know. I guess we'll find out. There are going to be people that look back at it and go, man, I wish I'd been a little bit more understanding of the other other position. There are going to be those people that are um, very anti-vaccination who think this is all some sort of government power grab. Uh, who are going to look back at it and realize that by the time this is done, we're probably going to have lost well over a million 
or, or more American citizens. And a good portion of those are going to be Christians who thought that they were safe and thought that they didn't need to wear masks and should continue to go gather un, unhindered and realize that, you know, maybe that sweet elderly lady that used to always bake pies for the Christmas party is no longer with us because she died from COVID. So those are real things that are happening. That, that's not a specific example of someone I know, but I can see five years from now, someone thinking about, that sweet little old lady who who got her vaccination, she was boosted, but she has a weak immune system because she's older or because she has some sort of pre-existing condition. And someone who is in their 20s or 30s who thought they were impervious and were never going to die didn't get vaccinated, but brought that in and, and made her sick and she died. Those are going to be real circumstances that we're going to have to deal with. And I don't want to be overly dramatic about this, but I do think that people will have to account for that in some way whether it's it's the personal angst of realizing they contributed to that or whether there's some sort of actual judgment from God that is going to fall on people who have been, I think, irresponsible in, in all of this, um, I, I, there, there's going to be an accounting for it. So I know some people are going to hear what I just said, and I actually know of at least one person who doesn't listen to the show anymore because they thought we were heavy-handed on this, and I, I wish they would reconsider coming back and, and rejoining the Brotherhood, uh, but at the end of the day, it's not really any skin off my nose if they choose not to do that. Um, so I don't want to be overburn, overbearing. I don't want to make this... This isn't a gospel issue, right? There are people who trust right. Jesus and love the Lord Jesus who are are just as saved and just as justified as Jesse and I am. And and, and this is a this is not an issue where we need to divide the church. Although practically speaking, I think that there's some division that happens just as a matter of function in this. But I, th- this is just something that this statistic that one in fourteen or one in four hundred and fifteen Americans has died in the last two years because of uh, results directly as of COVID, and if you consider just those who are considered elderly, it jumps to something like one in every one hundred. I'm going to say this. I, I'm sure this is going to rile some people up, and I'm I'm okay with that. Christians, particularly con- conservative, like act uh, like very conservative Christians are very quick to point to the fact that we should be about defending the most vulnerable people. And they apply that argument rightfully so to the abortion debate and to how we should interact with the state and sometimes against the state in reference to that. But there are also lots of vulnerable elderly people who we are not applying that argument to when we say, well, there's a 99% survival rating and it's even higher for people in my age bracket. That's true. For for people who are in their 20s and 30s with no underlying health conditions, the survival rate is much is even higher than 99% because that takes into all that all of the elderly people who have a, a dramatically lower survival rate. Um, that is an argument and a position that we need to equally apply, not only to people who are at the beginning of their life, uh, who have not yet been born, but also to people who are nearing the end of their life. Those lives are no less uh, valuable and no less worthy of being protected uh, than the the child who has not yet been born. So I think I'm going to Forrest Gump in and say that's all I have to say about that. Because <laughs> uh, if I don't, I'm going to continue to just go and this will become our episode and we will we'll lose that's sight fair. of the fact that we want to talk about the gospel. But this is just something that's been really, really heavy on my heart. Um, 
you know, every day I'm talking to people who in my work uh, who are affected now because of of COVID-19 that they can't visit their loved ones in the hospital. They can't get the surgery that they want to get or they can't they can't join someone in a in a routine care appointment that they would love love to be there to support. This is impacting people in my everyday life. And so it's been very heavy on my heart lately. I appreciate you bringing that forward. And I'm going to just jump on that as an affirmation of your denying against COVID-19, but also how the church at large has processed this. Let's say it that way, because shouldn't we start at least where we stand now from a position of the great tragedy that has unfolded before us and that our hearts ought to be at the very least and at the very first basically resonating with those who are suffering in this place, who have lost loved ones or themselves have prolonged effects from this virus. And if we can just start there, if all of us can just agree, no matter who you are, no matter what your political persuasion, if we can just start with the fact that this is a tragedy, I would hope that that would lead us then, especially as Christians, into this next place, which is what can we do to love our neighbors and to protect one another from that happening to anybody else? And I think everything that you said is absolutely fair. People who know us, who've listened to us expound or opine upon this before will know that this is nothing new. And maybe they would not be surprised to know that like the pre-conversation we had before this podcast was much less tame than what you just yeah. said. And that's True. not because we're, we're less like we're more judgmental in those kind of private moments, but we're, we're saying like loved ones, like this is an emergency And what we're saying is we're trying to call upon the church to say, if we have to forsake political allegiance, if we have to forsake even personal comfort, if we have to forsake inconvenience or convenience, will we do that for the sake of honoring those whom God has created, which is to say every person. But what does that look like here? And it can't just look like this kind of normative, you know, kind of like yellow, very like, you know, kind of go with the flow, you know, it's kind of like, we'll just take it as it comes. What is the proactive measure that love requires that is part and parcel of what it means to follow the Lord Jesus Christ in this area? So much of the church has gone before us in this area. So much of the reformers have gone before us and have written extensively about this type of thing. And I think I find that, unfortunately, it's just too easy for all of us, including myself, to get clouded with either the sense of entitlement or a sense of politics or sense of rights. And it just seems like that's not anything of what Christ calls us to consider first and foremost. So maybe the plea now, at least for me, and I don't know if you agree with this, is to say, can we reset a little bit on this? Can yeah. we de-escalate this massive like polemic conversation about you know, what is my right versus like, what is it, what is owed to my neighbor because of the way that Christ compels me to love. Right. And I'd rather start there and see where we go as opposed to trying to like kind of cram that or like try to like superimpose that on like all these other things. I just think we started in the wrong place and we've gone too far. It's like, you know, when you miss hit a golf ball, it's fine for the first two feet. You're not that far off the target. But once you get out 300 yards, I don't know how how hard you're supposed to be able to, or how long you're supposed to be able to hit a golf ball. <laughs> but like once once you get out, you're so far off the mark at that point. And I feel like in many ways that's where we've got. And so like this this heat, all this heat about this. Like I like that you said these are conversations worth having. So let's have them. Let's right. talk about them. Let's not escalate them to a place where we are making loved ones, especially those who are brothers and sisters, enemies in this, but that we're actually trying to listen, understand, and be loving. I think that's the ethic that should guide us and supersede, superimpose upon 
everything. And so even if you have to say, well, listen, I'll just say for myself, I've never once, never once, uh, even when I have been, um, let's say, like subtly mocked for, I've never once regretted wearing a mask. I've never yeah. once regretted trying to be more loving or a little bit more careful around my behavior. I've never once uh, regretted not being in a place because I had a sore throat at this time. I've never once regretted any of those things. And it's partly just because I, I really want to be concerned with what it means to be loving. I don't want to be that dude, but that yeah. argument is really shallow. What we should be yeah. saying is what does God require from us? And let's process that together. Let's do it. But let's like, let's lean into it. Let's actually do it. Not let's yeah. let some article, let some politician, let some ideology guide us. Let's let Christ, the son of God, who gives us this amazing standard, which is to give up ourselves, to serve, to wash feet. What does that look like in COVID-19? I'm not here to say that I have the answer, but I do want to try to find out and to do so in a way that really serves and gets after it in a wholehearted way. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So just because I know that the emails and the Facebook messages will come, I just want to lay out a few disclaimers. I'm speaking for myself, although I don't think that Jesse is different, but I, I'm more likely to get the email and the, the Facebook message because Jesse, <laughs> they like Jesse barely <laughs> exists on the internet besides this podcast. Uh, I say everything that I just said with also saying... I don't think that the government should be mandating and enforcing vaccinations. I think it's a it's a decision that everybody needs to make. I think there's a right decision and there's a wrong decision, but that's a decision people should make. I don't think that masking mandates actually work all that well because we're Americans and we do whatever we want. And so the mandate just actually gives people a reason to resist the mandate. Um, I'm not in support of things like restricting movement within our country based on vaccination status. So before people think that I'm some sort of raging liberal tool of the machine, uh, most of the things that you object to Uh, In terms of how this is to be applied to our culture, I actually agree with you on. So uh, for me, this is really a matter of the data. All of the data shows that vaccinations are overwhelmingly safe. Uh, That's not to say there aren't side effects and risks. Every single medication has side effects and risks, but they're overwhelmingly safe. They're overwhelmingly effective. Uh, and they are free at this point. Um, so yes, there might be some people where it doesn't make sense um, for health reasons or for other reasons to right. get of a course. vaccination. Those are all discussions people need, despite the fact that we joke around be about being a top 50 healthcare podcast, uh, which of course we are. Uh, we're not doctors. Um, <laughs> so please true. talk talk to your doctor. Talk to your doctor about your particular medical needs and whether there are legitimate reasons why you should be concerned about something like this vaccination. Um, and I'll just throw this out there as maybe my little semi-sarcastic jab. If you trust your doctor to prescribe you medication and trust your doctor to refer you to specialists and you trust those specialists to potentially do surgery on you and to do other treatments, then it doesn't make a ton of sense for you to go to them and have them tell you, yeah, you you should get vaccinated and then kind of throw your hands up and be like, well, they don't know what they're talking about. So talk to your doctor. If your doctor legitimately tells you for whatever reason, it's not a good idea for you to get vaccinated. I'm not going to contradict them. I'm not going to fight them on 
on that. Um, But I I do want to say like Jesse and I, I'll speak because I, I'm pretty sure I know mostly Jesse's in the same spot as me. Jesse and I are not raging liberals on this. We're not some tools of the machine who are advocating that the government should have absolute power and that people should be able to be made to do whatever the government thinks they should do. What we're advocating for is for, Looking at the information yourself, being critical and and investigative about it within the scope of your knowledge and expertise, recognizing where the boundaries of your knowledge lie, where the boundaries of your training lie, um, and then making a wise decision according to the principles that uh, have been laid out for us in the law. Right, we're we're told to preserve life. We're told to respect authorities. We're told to submit to the governing authorities, and so far as they don't compel us to sin, um, we're you know we're told to be honest in our dealings with each other. All of these things about how how we are to live have something to say to us as Christians about how we are to apply that wisdom that God has given us in the law out of gratitude for the salvation we have in Christ. How we are to apply that to the coronavirus pandemic or to whatever the next crisis is, right? So if if you're a person that's distrustful of the government, okay, the government has given us lots of reasons to be distrustful of it, sure. right? There have been lots of missteps and misinformation. Some of it has been unintentional. Some of it has been intentional. We can acknowledge that. That doesn't mean that we now have a wholesale freedom to disregard everything the government directs us to do, right? We have to think about those things as they come to us. So... Lest we get even more sidetracked <laughs> and and miss our topic, although this is a pretty average duration for our affirmations and denials, yeah. let's right get into schedule. it because I want to move out of this, which is very law heavy, right? This is a little bit of law. This is what we should do. This is what we have to do. This is what right. we must do. Let's talk about the gospel, Jesse. Yeah, let's talk about the gospel. And you and I were kind of talking, reminiscing a bit about how it's nice from time to time to come back to like an explicit conversation about the gospel that we hope that everything we're talking about is impounded, saturated, marinated in whatever verb you want to use with like the gospel itself. But because it is Christmas time and because this is kind of in many ways, like the door gets opened in our culture, if just a little bit about this idea of Jesus and why it's so important. I actually think you tell me if this is wrong. I think it's a good place to start. I actually think that the gospel still undervalued during Christmas time. Like still we miss yeah. the point. It, we, even among Christian sellers, we get wrapped up in lots of other things. I'm not just talking about like the trappings of Christmas. I'm talking about like the, we sometimes get our minds like kind of misfocused. Yeah. And really, if we're going to celebrate the gospel, let's celebrate the gospel. So yeah. what are we talking about? Yeah. So, so when we talk about the gospel as reformed Christians, we are talking about a very specific thing. And so you can go back in our back catalog and you're going to find episodes about how preaching the gospel without words is silly nonsense. Like that's not a thing you can do. Um, You're going to hear episodes about how the gospel is uh, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Um, You're going to hear us talk about how the gospel is not sharing your testimony. Right. I mean, right. Just, just honestly, like you're right. not sharing the gospel when you tell someone how you came to salvation, at least probably not. The gospel is a very specific thing. It's a very specific kind of speech and talk. And simply put, the gospel is that Jesus Christ, who was eternally God and is eternally God, took on flesh, lived a perfect life on behalf of sinners died a death that those sinners those sinners deserved and was raised to new life so that he could bring them with him in his new life. That's the gospel, that God has made a way 
for sinners who are his enemies to not only just become his friends, but to become his family, to be swept up in his very life through his son, Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. And that is what we want to talk about. And it has a particularly, I think, a particularly focused application at Christmas time. Right. Because what we talk about and think about in midwinter is that pivotal moment in history when the God men entered into creation. Right. Yeah. That, I love that introduction because, and this is what I meant by it's like kind of the gospel is like in a bear market, even during Christmas time, because in some sense, because like chronologically speaking, we're on the other side of the cross. So we just take Christians generally take for granted this idea of like, of course, Jesus came and he was a baby and he condescended and there was this life lived and the sacrifice given. But this idea, I think what what, uh, this time calls us back to is this sense that, you know, this is where I get down with Advent. Advent is this idea of waiting in anticipation for relief from suffering that like salvation is, was required and necessary and real. That is, there was an emerging situation from which we needed rescue. And the only reason why the gospel means good news is because the good news was the rescue. And that's what we all longed for. And we see this like pattern throughout the scriptures. So it's just, we're not a people used to waiting. Generally, we're also not a people that are used to waiting because we're on the other side of the cross. So to put ourselves in a place, we recognize the dire need of our spiritual state and condition. That is that we were people in darkness, that we needed some kind of light, that we were lost and damned toward punishment, both that we should have deserved temporarily and eternally, and that we're just waiting. We're waiting for relief. We're waiting for resolution. This is the time of year we kind of sink into, lean into that kind of, I would say like synthesized suffering or at least appreciation for our condition. And that there's so much at stake with the coming of Jesus, not at stake in the sense that there's so much that God had to get right in order for this to work. He was always working out his grand plan of salvation. But we need to realize that everything that we are on this side of the cross is because of what was at stake in Jesus. And so we've spoken at great length about how the good news is not, of course, just that Jesus died and cemented his place as the rightful heir of everything that God gave to him. And then we as basically brothers and sisters of our first brother, who is Jesus Christ. But in the sense that we were the ones that deserved this great mediated, unmediated, I guess, punishment. And so when we have Jesus come and fulfill all righteousness and then transfer that to us, what we find in quote unquote Christmas time is kind of this pointed, this very narrowed, this distilled idea that Jesus comes as the last Adam and recapitulates everything. He does everything right. It's as if he is all humanity in one person. He is all humanity in one person, living out what the Israelites could not fulfill and doing for us the thing that one, we didn't want to do. And second, the thing that we could never do. And so that's what I mean. There's all this was at stake so that like to be a Christian now is to stand in the accomplishment of Christ. To be a Christian in Abraham's time was to look forward to this great promise that one would come who would fulfill everything. So like everything is at stake. Like I, 
can we, we really can't like hype this up enough, right? Like this, this is what it means to appreciate the son of God as truly God and truly man coming in the fullness of time to recapitulate all of humanity, to do it right, to wear tassels on the road, to not have an uncut beard, like all this stuff to be baptized, even though he was one that needed no cleansing, all of this was to round out into fully orbed humanity so that we could go back in some way to the garden where we were created in story to live in harmony with God. Jesus does all of this. And the way yeah. in which God orchestrates his plan is to such perfection that it's accomplished without error, without compromise. And it's overwhelming. And so like, I feel like at this time we should be overwhelmed. There's never a bad time to consider the incarnation. But this, of all times, if we're going to use the calendar as an excuse to focus our minds, then I feel like we ought to feel this, this weight of glory, so to speak, in recognizing who Jesus is, what he did, and what was at stake in his coming. I mean, is, am yeah. I going like too far off here on this? No. And I think, you know, this time of year, we are, we, not just Christians, but we, Amer- particularly American culture, I guess I don't know for sure what it's like in other countries, but I would imagine, in, at least in other Western countries, you probably see the same kind of sappy Hallmark movies come out. And I, I want to read, this is, maybe this is unprecedented. I don't think I've ever done this on the show, but I want to read an entire Wikipedia article to you. Are you ready <laughs> for this, go. Jesse? This is a Wikipedia article titled True Meaning of Christmas. Oh, interesting. And it says the true meaning of Christmas is a phrase that began to appear in the mid 19th century when a shift towards a more secular culture resulted in a national backlash. Christians began to see the secularization of the celebration day of the birth of Christ as a shift towards Santa Claus and gift exchanging, replace the celebration of the advent of Christ and giving to the poor and needy without expectation of receiving anything in return. A poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas, helped popularize the tradition of exchanging gifts and seasonal Christmas shopping began to assume economic importance. Harriet Beecher Stowe criticizes the commercialization in her story, Christmas or the Good Fairy, an early expression of sentiment using the phrase, quote, the true meaning of Christmas, end quote, is found in the American Magazine, volume 28, which was published in 1889. So just to pause there, this is a this is an issue that's going back in our country and in the United States, at least now over 100 years where people are talking about how Christmas is beginning to lose its meaning. However, Let's continue and we'll see what what this culture's answer was and what they thought the true meaning of Christmas was. So the Wikipedia article continues with a quote from that article of the American Magazine. It says, quote, to give up one's very self, to think only of others, how to bring the greatest happiness to others, that is the meaning of Christmas, end quote. The phrase is especially associated with Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol, in which old mi- an old miser named Ebenezer Scrooge is taught the true meaning of Christmas by three ghostly visitors who review his past and foretell his future. The logic was taken up by the satirists such as Stan Freeberg and Tom Leher during the 1950s and eventually by an influential TV special, A Charlie Brown Christmas, first aired in 1965 and repeated every year since. Quote, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown, end quote, says Linus Van Pelt, after he recites the Annunciation to the Shepherds from the Bible referring to the birth of Christ. 
Dr. Seuss's How the Grinch Stole Christmas also illustrates the topic and was very influential in in the form of animated TV special product produced in 1966. The phrase and the associated moral became used as a trope in numerous Christmas films since the 1960s. The phrase found its way into the 2003 Irby at Orby address of Pope John Paul II, quote, the crib and the tree, precious symbols, which hand down in time the true meaning of Christmas, end quote. So, this has been an issue in our culture. And then the answer that our culture had for what the true meaning of Christmas was completely wrong. Right. It's not about our self-giving. It's not about our selflessness and how we can bring the most happiness to the most people. Even Linus, out, out of all these people who got the closest by pointing to the, the, the nativity narrative in Luke, to the annunciation, to the shepherds in Luke, even Linus, who is the closest, still missed it. Because Christmas at the end of the day is not about the incarnation in itself, right? In an right. abstract form. And even most Christmas stories that talk about the, the birth of Christ, it's, it's really just about this baby in a manger. There's no talk about this baby being God, unless right. maybe they read some scripture, right? Maybe they read some, some traditional scriptures, and so it sort of works its way in here. But Christmas is not about the birth of some random child even under special circumstances 2,000 years ago. Christmas is about the cross. The, the incarnation and Christ becoming a man, becoming a human, taking on our nature, becoming even as we are so that we might become even as he is, becoming a, a man so that man might become sons of God. Right. That's what Christmas is about. Right on. But if we lose sight of that connection and that, that movement of incarnation to to righteous life to sacrificial death to uh, sort of uh, vicarious resurrection, right? Christ is raised on our behalf in our stead, so that one day we may we might fulfill that resurrection that He has already been raised in our resurrection. So right. our resurrection, Christ basically put our resurrection on His credit account when He was raised, and someday that will be paid off by us as we are raised as well. We will fulfill that resurrection where our resurrection is complete. All of that has to be wrapped up when we talk about the gospel at Christmas. If your if your Advent sermons. Right. And all of this, of course, is coming with the asterisks of everything we've ever said about Advent and Christmas. We're not we're not proposing new holy days. So let's just get that out of the way. If all of your Advent sermons and all of your Christmas sermons and all of your epiphany sermons and everything that comes after Christmas, if all of that is just focused on the baby in the manger and doesn't make that progression towards the second Advent, which has the cross right in the middle of it, right, right in the middle of those two points, if you don't make progress towards that, then you're actually just, you're right where Linus was, right? Linus is just talking about... That's what Christmas is about. It's about a baby in a manger. But at the end of the day, the gospel is not limited to a baby in a manger. That baby in the manger was necessary for the gospel to come to be, for the gospel to be good news. But when the angel said, I will bring you good news of great joy that will be for all of the people, unto you in this day is born in the town of Bethlehem a Savior, Christ the Lord, that was not just looking at, well, it's really great news that there's this baby. I mean, everybody loves when a baby is born, right? right? A baby baby being born is an exciting thing. It's a crowd but pleaser. It's a crowd pleaser. But at the end of the day, 
if that's all that Christmas is about, then we should just wrap up shop and go home. Because right. a baby being born 2,000 years ago, even a really special baby, isn't isn't enough for our salvation. We have to get to the cross. And the, the incarnation is not just a prerequisite for the cross. The incarnation has its own particular role in in the economy of redemption. But the incarnation is a prerequisite from the cross, even though it is much right. more than that. But the prerequisite doesn't do much good for us if the final result of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not in place. So that needs to dominate, even at Christmas, the cross and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ and the second coming of Christ, even at Christmas, those things need to have a place of, pri- of prominence in our gospel presentation. Because without those things, then, then the, the, the baby in a manger is not really all that good news. It's just, inter- it's, maybe it's interesting news. Right. It's, it's, pleasurable news. news, right? It's news and it's good news, but it's not gospel good news. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. It is like intellectually stimulating. Maybe we can speak about it theologically or intellectually. I'm with you. I think the problem is like just emphasizing that by itself without like immediately thinking about the birth of Christ, of course, is, and I don't want to jump ahead. It's not as if we think about the birth of Christ immediately for sacrifice. We think of like his righteous living, but it, that this, the birth has to happen as part of like the mission. It's like step one. Like, so it's, let's not get so wrapped up in step one. That's exciting. Sure. But like the more exciting thing is that here we have one who comes to fulfill and it comes to take on everything that comes to accomplish all that is humanity should have accomplished. And that does so perfectly. And then the one who triumphs over death. And of course he dies this ignominious death. Like he looks forward, he looks ahead to what is set before him, but then he rises. He raised is raised from the dead, triumphs over the grave, substantiates his claim that he is truly God and truly man. And then we receive as beneficiaries everything that he has earned, both in his living and also in his dying and rising again. So I understand that some people, I think, want to kind of like compartmentalize or bifurcate this idea of like, well, let's celebrate the child. The death stuff is kind of nasty. And that comes in three months where I think about Easter, but it's all together. That, right. that God would give himself unreservedly, that he give his son in such a way to that is both condescending, like incredibly condescending. And I don't think anybody in their right mind can wrap their minds around this kind of low-bornness, so to speak. Right. Nobody can. That in and of itself should cause us to have great doxology. But then beyond this, that he's going to live in a way where his eyelids and fatigue and sore feet and is hungry and then will die, will actually die a human death, understands in its fullness what it means to be a human, to experience this expiration, so to speak, and then to be raised again. All yeah. of this must be together. It must be impounded. It must be like completely saturated in how we speak about the gospel because that is the good news. Otherwise, it's just mostly news. Like right. you said, like people are born, people die. But the fact that this child is different, and in point of fact, like just to go all the way back to draw kind of us both into the New and to the Old Testament. We find that this kind of advent, this looking forward, this anticipating, I mean, really with bated breath, like how will God save his people? When will the Messiah, the anointed one come who does all of these things for us that we cannot secure for ourselves? We messed it up. 
And how is he going to not only make right, but completely restore? We see this in almost every character's life in the, that the scripture gives to us as God disclosed. Yeah. So I th- I've been thinking recently, as I always do at this time of year, uh, for instance, like what Martin Luther said about the life of Joseph, who like we'd say is a character who had like, you know, a kind of an ex- exemplary and exceptional life in many ways. But Luther spoke about how like even Joseph had like a death and a resurrection that we see this pattern that he is punished unjustly for something basically is entombed in that punishment and then rises again to a place of authority and prominence and control and is small as a savior of the people of Israel moving forward. God's great grand plan for that massive anointed savior to come and restore all people. And then you can compare that with something like we think about uh, these three wise men or in our culture, the three wise men, the Magi who come here is God from like the very beginning through like Daniel, the prophet Daniel, saving a people, bringing knowledge into a people group that is basically using like astrology in a way that God can not condemns, not condones. Right. And even there, he is first bringing to bear and making aware to people outside of the Israelite community that the savior has arrived. So, so much so that when they show up, and they say, like, where is the king of the Jews? Like, this is an amazing scene, isn't it? Like, they're like, yeah. where is the king of the Jews? And Herod's like, say what now? Yeah. What did you say? <laughs> You're looking at him and they're like, no, 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 not you. Like the king of the Jews. Yes. Yeah. Like they're exactly like they're one, the one who is foretold from of old, the one who the prophecy fulfills. Where is that king? And he's like, hold on a second. Let me just bring in some consultants, the guys yeah. who know this. And they're like, where are the king? And these guys are like, uh, is it Bethlehem? I don't know. Yeah. Like, where is <laughs> I mean, I, I have a much more favorable read of them. I feel like they came in there like Bethlehem. It's it's definitely Bethlehem. Like I, th- that's what's so amazing to me about about the the birth narratives, right? And this this ties into like Old Testament studies, redemptive history. We're not going to have time to get into all of that, but this is all wrapped up in the fact that God has operated through His covenant people in a in a uniform way throughout all of redemptive history. Right on. Right, all the way from Genesis three fifteen which we tend to focus on that last part that he, you will bruise his heel and he will bruise or he will bruise your head or he will crush your head. But all of that is because he's the seed of the woman, right? So so all of that, as much as we're talking about how the, the, you know, Christmas is necessary. The incarnation doesn't avail us much. If it's not for the cross, the cross also wasn't possible without the incarnation. So it is this dynamic, but all the way through that. Right. And even that, right. Adam's task. I mean, it's actually, I never even thought about it this way. I just had one of those like theological epiphanies just, just now. So bear with me. Cause it's not going to come out too well formed <laughs> even in the garden. Right. Adam's task was to guard and to keep the garden. Right. And he didn't. He should have been the one that crushed the head of the serpent. Of course. Right. So now what do we have? We have the guarantor who is fulfilled, the, the surety who is fulfilled, who will fulfill Adam's obligation on behalf of Adam. Right. So, so now, we, now we're talking about covenant theology in the gospel. Right. That, that Christ is the surety of our salvation. Right. And so, so I always say, and, and, you know, I get it. Like not every sermon can go this direction. Sometimes, sometimes a pastor has to make a decision about a sermon to recognize that most of the people who hear the sermon the first week are also going to hear the sermon the next week. And so sometimes a pastor makes a decision to leave the congregation sort of sit in the bad news for a week. So that way when they come back and hear the good news the next week, it's not that much sweeter. 
this happens especially on Good Friday. I always shudder a little bit to think about like, what if someone in the congregation who wasn't saved got in a car accident and died? <laughs> but I get it. I don't want to. I don't want to like bag on pastors who make this decision because I understand why it happens and it's totally fine. It's their discretion. But I always try when I, either when I'm thinking about a sermon or when I'm preaching a sermon, I always try to think if if someone came to this sermon and their question was, "What must I do to be saved?" If right. that was their question, did I give them an answer? Right. Did did they walk away from that sermon? knowing the answer to that question. And I, I really am frustrated sometimes when I visit another church because I, I'm, you know, sometimes I, I hope, I hope maybe that he doesn't listen to this, but I also kind of hope that he does. I, I absolutely love the pastor of my church back home in Minnesota. Like he's a dear friend. He's a close, close friend. I haven't talked to him as much as I'd like to, but he's, a, he's been a really, really amazing support and blessing to me in my life. But I often go back when I go back to Minnesota, I often walk away from that thinking about my own mother who who is at best a nominal Christian who grew up in the church and and is unclear about what exactly salvation is and how it functions at, at best. At worst is an unbeliever who's never understood the gospel. It's not my job to read hearts, so I'm not going to make a decision. But I always think about her going to one of those sermons and I always think about her going and thinking what what would I got to, what do I got to do to be saved? And I often walk away from those sermons when I'm visiting being like I have she would have no idea. She would have no idea. And so I want to I want to just maybe close this episode out now that we've kind of presented some of the some of the technical details around the gospel and how it interacts with Christmas. Because Christ is our surety, the only thing we have to do in order to be saved by him is to trust him to be that surety. Right on. Right? It's kind of like if um, if I tell Jesse, Jesse calls me for some reason and says, I just got a speeding ticket. There's no way that I'm going to be able to pay this, this ticket. And I say, don't worry, Jesse. I've got you covered. The only thing he has to do for me to do that is trust me to do it. Right? That's all he's got to do. He's He's got to say, all right, Tony says he's got it covered. I'm going to just take him at his word. I'm going to trust him to take care of it. He can rest in the fact that I'm going to take care of it and he can receive the the forgiveness of that debt by allowing me to take care of it. That's how salvation works for us, Christian, or I suppose non-Christian is who I'm talking to. That's how salvation works in Christianity. We, by faith, receive not some external abstract salvation, but by faith, we receive Jesus Christ himself and all of his benefits. And the first benefit is that he is our surety. He is our guarantor. He is the one who fulfilled Adam's task Amen. and fulfills the task appointed to every human being to live a life of perfect, perpetual, and ongoing obedience without any failures in order to merit salvation. We can't do that. Even, even if I were to live a perfect life according to the law, which is impossible for me to do, but even if I were to do that, I started out with a debt across against me because of Adam's sin. And so Christ steps in, he fulfills that first task that Adam failed at of crushing the head of the serpent. He fulfills that task of not taking to himself the knowledge of good and evil, right? It, it's no... It's no, this is another connection that I just made on the fly. It's no coincidence that one of the things that uh, Paul says of, of Christ is that he did not consider it, uh, he did not consider being in the nature of God something to cling to or something to grasp. But the language there in Philippians is he did not consider it robbery 
Right. And the idea behind that is he did not see fit to unlawfully take the form of God. That's part of what's going on. There's also an element that like it wasn't robbery because it was his already, but he did not see fit to illicit, illicitly take and become what God is as a man. That's what Adam tried to do. Tried to take. He tried to. He considered it robbery. He thought of it robbery and took it. He tried to take the knowledge of good and evil. Christ didn't do that, right? When he was given the opportunity in the desert to claim the status of God by by worshiping the devil and being given authority over heaven and earth, he didn't do that. So not only did he he succeed at crushing the head of the serpent, he succeeded at not taking, uh, illicitly taking the status that he he needed to earn by obedience. Where Adam tried to take the shortcut, he followed the law. He did all these things on our behalf. That's the gospel, friends. Is right. that all we have to do? The only thing I have to do in order to be saved and to obtain all of those blessings, everything that was promised to Adam. In the covenant of works, eternal life, perfect, perfect union with God, perfect fellowship with his fellow man, with his wife and with his children and with those who had come down after him. All of that was promised to him in the covenant of works. The only thing I have to do is to let Jesus do it for me. It's the only thing I have to do. And that, my friends, is the gospel. That's the gospel is that Jesus Christ took care of all of that. And all we have to do is, is trust him to take care of it. We just have to let him say, I've got it. And then let him get it. That's all it is. I mean, on one level, it's so simple, but it's almost deceptively simple because of course that involves all sorts of technical theology that we have to discuss and we have to understand. We're going to get to that. But for this episode, I, I have in mind, this episode is something you can share with an unbeliever who asks you, What's the deal with Christmas, right? Someone in an office party says, well, you know, the true meaning of Christmas is that we just, you know, goodwill towards your fellow man. Well, right. no, that's not the true meaning of Christmas. That's not at all what the meaning of Christmas is. Even Linus didn't quite get it. I mean, Linus is a great example. I love that clip. It's one of my favorite clips from all of television history. And, and the story behind it's great. You should look it up someday. But the, the story, the way that Linus presents the meaning of Christmas only gets you halfway there. Because that baby in the manger went on to do all this stuff. That baby in the manger was the surety of our salvation. But he had to live his life and die his death in order for that to, to come to be. So friends, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he lived for us, he died for us, and he was raised for us, that all those who are his would be united to him and not a single right. one would be lost. Right. All right, dear hearts, let's let the have, let's let the have, let's let the scriptures have uh, the final word on this. And I'm going to read from Philippians, which Tony has already well paraphrased. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I, that's it. <laughs> that's it. Amen. Well, that's Jesse, Christmas. that's Christmas. 
and, and the, the moral of the story, the, the punchline of the of the joke, and it's not a joke, but <laughs> Where the, the punch the punchline is that the gospel at Christmas is all about Easter. Amen. And if you make it just about Christmas, just about nativity, just about the announcement to Mary or the the ben, you know, the the Benedictus at the temple, all this other stuff that we get focused on at Christmas in our preaching and our in our Advent devotionals, all this other stuff, it's the Bible, it's there, it's good, it's it's for your benefit, it's for your edification and it's useful and profitable. But if we get stuck there, and then we don't make it to Philippians 2. We don't make it to 1 Corinthians 15. We don't make it to the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And that right. grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. If we don't get there, then we actually haven't understood the meaning of Christmas. And the meaning of Christmas is the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of the God who left the 99 to pursue the one and to die and be redeemed or to die so that they might be redeemed. That's the gospel at Christmas. Amen. So loved ones, if you have a friend or a family member, you know, this is going to come out on Christmas Eve. So like maybe just like pull your phone out at Christmas dinner and like hit play, maybe skip over affirmations <laughs> and denials. We don't want to introduce like a political discussion at your Christmas dinner, right but just on. like throw it out there, hit play. It's all good. It's all good. Let us, let us be the bad guys who give the good news. Uh, but seriously, it, it take take this year as an opportunity. You know, this is a year. Uh, this is a year where a lot of people are thinking about death. A lot of people are thinking about the future, and they're really right. scared. And the gospel has the power to cut through all of that, to cut to the quick. And it's it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves souls. It's the name above names by which men must be saved. Right on. So use this year, use this Christmas as an opportunity to share the gospel with your family, with your coworkers, with that, that bell ringer who is, who you think is obnoxious. Cause every time you try to walk into the grocery store, they're ringing that bell in your ear. Take a minute, toss, toss a five in their kettle and say, Hey, can I tell you about what I think Christmas is about and share the gospel with them? I'm going to try to do that. I know that that's something I try to do every year. It's something I try to do in my daily life is share the gospel when there's opportunities. But this is a unique time of year where people are already thinking about the true meaning of Christmas. They're confronted with this commercialism that we all realize is just junk. We all realize right. it's just a profit grab from from consumer companies. And that's what this reaction was, this reaction to the true meaning of Christmas. But we we need to get below the cultural true meaning of Christmas and recognize that none of that makes any sense. This right. goodwill towards our fellow men, if we're all just evolved germs, then the right thing to do is to take as much as I can get and not right. give anything I can I can get away with not giving. That's the right thing to do in a, a materialistic evolution model. In the, the reality of things, we recognize that goodwill towards other people is important. And it's important because of who we are and especially who we are in Christ. Right. And I can say this because we're already at like the one hour, five minute mark, but it's Christmas. So we can give more here. It's so true. here's the thing is everything you're saying, of course, is right on. What, what I think bothers me is like when we presume when we hear people speak about like goodwill toward men, like peace on earth, that always presumes something you're, like you're too far down the road. What started that process? It's Jesus Christ. All, mm -hmm. all of this, like everything, everything that you want to assimilate into the Christmas season of like this sense of joy and goodwill and harmony 
and loveliness, all of that originates in God and especially in his gift of giving his son. So you want to say to people, if you could shake everybody and say like, I, I know that you want this thing and you're right to want this thing. But the reason why this time of year, you uh, you kind of embrace it so much. The only reason you can is because even there, we are standing on the shoulders of Christ all yeah. of us, like there's a common grace in all of this to even celebrate this time of year. And so it is really a kind, a kind of like convenient way uh, to kind of broach that topic. So as you are able, as you are willing to do that, do it. And like Tony said, you want to use this as the excuse of these two crazy guys who have this podcast, like said this stuff. I'm curious what you think about it. That's fine. We're happy to be those, those people. And again, we've been acclaimed. We have been recognized top 50 healthcare podcasts. We don't make that up. <laughs> We've it's been true. reached out. People reached out to us and said, listen, it's true. we found out that you're a top 50 healthcare podcast. One of the things that we're trying to do as you look to the new year is we're trying to gather some more questions for question cast. And of course, you want to leave us a question. The best way to do that is by dialing this number and then just giving us like a brief little question. The number is 607-444-2767. Bros. Well done. And that was way more bassy than I expected it to be. Oh, it was absolutely beautiful. The resonant tones, the moveless nature of your voice really carried that. That I'm sure is going to convince people to call. And we've gotten some voicemails. I'm looking at you, brother Josh from New Mexico. We hear you. We're gathering a bunch of voicemails for people who have like succinct questions that want to drop us. We want to do those episodes where people want to ask us something. I, I want to go out on a limb, Tony, because it's going to be a new year soon and say like, I don't think there's any question off limits. Is that fair? Like people could ask the question about us or about theology. We prefer probably the more theological bent, but I suppose I could ask questions of any kind of nature and yeah. we would accept them. Is that fair? I mean, we'll accept them. I don't know whether we'll answer all of them. <laughs> I mean, we're not going to answer like, like inappropriate questions. No, no. Why are we talking about that? No, nothing I don't like know. weird. I'm just, I'm just trying to head that off. I'm just okay. trying to get out fair in front enough. of it. I could see someone sending in as a joke question me like, you said you'd answer anything. <laughs> but yeah, my, my personal life is pretty much an open book. I'm fine with that. If people yeah. want to ask questions about my personal life or or things like that, that's fine. I think that, that'd be a fun question cast to just talk about us. We're going to peel back the curtain a little bit on some of our family dynamics and some some things that's that we've true. got going on. That's We're going true. to do some special stuff over the uh, midwinter, no reason break. Uh, so look forward to that. But yeah, send in your questions, whether they're technical theological questions or practical. How do I how do I think about this verse in this context or apply it to this situation? We're not pastors. We're not your pastor, so obviously we're everything we say has that asterisk on it. But I'm happy to tell you what I think about a particular passage and what what it means in a particular situation. Yeah, we'd love to get more questions. Yeah, for sure. So for those in the back, one last time. The number is 607-444-2767. You will Bros. dial that number. You'll get a nice little voicemail and you can just leave your message. And we do tend to get a lot of questions of the follow-up nature. Those are totally cool. So you've, maybe you've heard us talk about something. Maybe it was episode six and you're yeah. like, hey, like a circle back around on that one. I got a follow-up question for that. Like Listen, when Jesse said that Grace is injected. <laughs> If you've got questions Why about that, that, that to come up? please call and ask because Jesse is not a Roman Catholic. He's not even a Baptist anymore. So the, the landscape is very different. Uh, hashtag not a Catholic. So we, I guess we, by contractual obligation, want to say, of course, we wish everybody this season in which they celebrate the incarnation, lean in deeply into what Jesus Christ has done for us, which includes, of course, both his birth, but especially his life death and resurrection. 
and that you do this in a way that celebrates, brings praise to the great glory of his name, and also allows you to hopefully get together with friends and family in a way that is safe and loving and thoughtful. I think I speak for both Tony and I, where we wish you all of those things in spades. Yeah. Well, Jesse, until next time, Merry Christmas. Honor everyone. Listen, Merry Christmas. Love the brotherhood. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown.